Welcome to Rocking Your Prize. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now here's a big question for you. Why was ancient Nubia less controlling than ancient Egypt? So there is a fascinating new book on the kingdoms of ancient Africa, including Egypt, Nubia, Sudan, Ethiopia, the Yoruba, the Asante, Congo, Buganda, and Zulu. It's called Great Kingdoms of Africa, and it came out this year. This book begins with a really important premise. States were often coercive, so they should not be celebrated as more advanced civilizations. I think this is a, a really important mentality. While grandiose palaces are aesthetically impressive, that surplus was usually extracted from laborers who lived in squalor. So this is a useful corrective, I think to narratives that dismiss or denigrate small-scale societies, as well as those who defensively hype up small kingdoms. Now, ancient Nubia has been much overshadowed by its famous neighbour to the north, Egypt, but it actually provides really important insights about the interconnections between geography, states and culture. So today I wish to discuss David Wengrow's fascinating chapter on ancient Nubia, which I will supplement with insights from the archaeologist uh, Solange Ashby. Okay, so compared to ancient Egypt, Nubia offers far less evidence of complex administration, huge granary storage, or territorial fortifications, writes Wengrow. White writing, a major instrument of state control, as we know from David Stasevich, came much later. Egyptians developed hieroglyphics in 2700 BC. The Meroitic script emerged 2000 years later and was mostly confined to the royal court. So seasonal trade fairs were hosted in what they call hafirs. These are like artificial catchment basins built alongside temples. And autonomous tribes moved in and out with their herds. Now, ancient Nubia presents a, pro a puzzle argues Wencrow, and I quote, how did its population manage to prevent the emergence of domination in their own midst, despite the existence of Egyptian models of governance on their doorstep and the effects of recurring Egyptian predation on their people and resources? His answer, ease of exit. Plows and oxen were and let me explain. So plows and oxen were developed by the, adopted by the Egyptians, not the Nubians, in the middle of the fourth millennium BCE. Owners of these new technologies were increasingly able to command the labour of those without. This sowed the seeds of class divisions and dependencies. Dependent on the, uh, Nile's alluvial floodplains, there was nowhere else to go. People worked to feed both themselves and also their dead ancestors. Well-appointed graves included pots with leavened bread and fermented wheat beer. Rulers' grand tombs were often constructed alongside breweries and bakeries, perhaps to provide for them. Strong states organised large-scale industries and construction. Egypt's great pyramids were built by armies of corvée labourers, fed by mass-produced beer and bread. Drinking may have fostered solidarity among men's seasonal work crews, suggests Wencrow. And that ex uh, uh, echoes uh, David Slingerland's excellent book, Drunk. Now, the Kerma Kingdom, uh, which is from 2700 BC to 1500 BC, was located further south. 
they farm crops and they also raised cattle. The Middle Nile's alluvial floodplains were quite sparse. Summer rains were much more important, opening up seasonal grazing lands. Karma burials, writes Wenkro, often comprise weapons and cattle. 5,000 cattle skulls were found at one grave. That's some feat, considering that in the 3rd and 2nd millennium, Egyptians continually raided these lands for slaves and livestock. Divine powers were wielded by both Egyptian and Nubian rulers, but in different ways. Wenkro distinguishes between the northern kings of flood and the southern kings of rain. Kerma temples were orientated towards the sky. Their most sacred area was an open roof terrace. By contrast, the inner sanctums of Egyptian temples were dark and confined. Wenkro does not make this point explicitly, but that religious architecture seems to reflect contrasting dependence on rains and floods. So why was the Nubian state less coercive? Wenkro's suggestion is that geography favoured pastoralism enabling Nubians to take their cattle and leave. I will add, learning from David Stasevich, that since there was little centralised storage to record, there was also less use for writing. So, is this a story of geographical determinism? Not so fast. Contemporary cross-sectional research finds that herders are more likely to idealise female seclusion. Uh, You know the wonderful work of Anke Becker. But in ancient Nubia, details archaeologist Solange Ashby, women were central to royal legitimacy and exercised spiritual power. Like many African societies, Napathan queens, so this is um, 800 to 300 BCE, were revered as king's mothers and played an important ritual role in coronations. She delivered a speech to the god Amun, requesting that he grant her son the Kushite kingship. Napathan kings and I will struggle to pronounce their names, Teharko and Aspelta invoked their female lineage to the dynasty's founder in order to proclaim their right to rule. The goddess Hathor was manifested by Kushite queens, just as in Egypt, royal women were also assigned the independently powerful role of the god's wife of Ammon. By singing prayers, royal women communicated directly with the god. This sharply contrasts with 21st century Egypt, where religious extremists view women's voice as aura. Now, come forward to the to the Meroitic period, that's 300 BCE to 300 CE, Meroitic queens consolidated far greater power and they ruled either uh, independently or as co-regents. Now, some gender scholars argue that state consolidation begets patriarchy, but the Meroitic Golden Age was ruled by women. And unlike Egypt, where queens often wore the false beard of a king, Meroitic queens always appear ultra-feminine. Temple walls are adorned with their voluptuous bare breasts and curvy hips. And there's a real emphasis on fertility, which is common to many uh, traditional African societies. So... For me, learning from David Wencrow and Solange Ashby, the lesson from ancient Nubia is that pastoralism's ease of exit may have inhibited state coercion, but certainly did not entail patriarchy. That came much later. And you know my theory. It's all about conquest. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Dr Alice Evans. 
One little thing, if you're interested in threads, I am Dr. Alice Evans. That's D-R, Alice Evans, all one word. Thank you very much.